back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line and talk to the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, uh, writers, directors, producers, cinematographers, costume designers, production designers, video um, film editors, video editors, sound editors, sound mixers. We talk to them all. Uh, and of course, composers. Very big here on Behind the Lens. Composers. Um, today, today, we have another full show for you. We're going to kick off the show today uh, with our exclusive pre-recorded interview with Joshua Campbell, writer-director of Infamous, starring Bella Thorne. It's out digitally right now. Um, I'll talk a little more about it in a second. And then at the midpoint of the show, Jeffrey uh, Dornbos was supposed to join us last week with his writer-director, Nathan Wetherington, to talk about A Thousand Miles Behind. Unfortunately, Jeffrey was not able to join in live. But because I love his publicist and because I love the film, um, (laughs) Jeffrey's going to be on the show today at the midpoint of the show. Um, And for those of you that have not seen Jeffrey's work outside of film... He is part of the of New York City's Blue Man Group, uh, which is something we're going to talk about because the whole idea of Blue Man Group with no speaking plays very heavily into Jeffrey's role in the, as the character of Preston in A Thousand Miles Behind. So Jeffrey should be here at the half hour of the show. But a little more about Infamous. I have to say, I didn't know what to expect uh, when I watched Infamous. Now, I'm already an admirer of Joshua Campbell's work. I loved what he did on a film called Negative and then Be Somebody. Um, He also did a film I still want to see called Layover. Joshua is one of the most uh, cinematically articulate filmmakers out there today. And I would love to see him do more films than he does. But uh, Infamous more than makes up for it. Uh, Basically, the premise is simple. We have two, two main characters, Ariel, played by Bella Thorne, Dean Taylor, played by Jake Manley, and then a third primary character, um, a young lady named Elle, uh, or Ellie, and is play, who is played by Amber Riley. And the premise is simple. Ariel and Dean commit robberies, and they post to social media. Um, as they trek from the southern United States across the country, with the goal being get to Hollywood. Ariel is obsessed with fame, with followers. To her, fame and love is equated to followers and likes. Uh, Dean is just, yeah, he wants to get out of the South because he's been in prison on B&E and uh, he wants to start a new life. And he is totally smitten with Ariel and will do almost anything for her. And what Joshua does is put forth a powerful societal commentary on so many levels. And it takes on particular, a particular gravitas and meaning when viewed in the light of the recent protests and riots. Um, particularly here in Los Angeles, where looters, criminals were vandalizing, um, especially up on the Fairfax district. 
and they're taking selfies of themselves and they're and mugging for the cameras and they're on social media saying, hey, no cops are here. Come join us um, at committing madness and mayhem. Um, under that new lens that we have, this infamous becomes more cautionary, more eye-opening. Um, it's, it's scary to see this fictional narrative play out in real life to the degree that it has the past couple of weeks. But it really makes you stop and think about this generation and the obsession with fame and the lengths they will go to in order to, uh, to obtain it. There's a very key line in the film when, that Ariel says when Dean is saying, hey, you know, we got to cool it, got to lay back. And she's like, no, she goes, nobody famous ever goes to jail. Uh, when you think about it, pretty much as a rule for most of, <laughs> for most of uh, history, that has applied. Uh, it's getting to the point of not so much anymore. But it's that mindset. The characters are extremely well fleshed out, particularly Ariel. Uh, and Jake Manley, he infuses Dean with a confidence, but also an innocence and naivete that makes him endearing. You like Dean. You want to see him break away from Ariel as she gets more emotionally out of control. Uh, and that emotional in uncontrollability and insanity that we see unfold is just heightened thanks to Eve Cohen's cinematography and the use of handheld camera work, the increasing use, uh, saturation of color. And, of course... Will Torbett's amazing editing. And all of this gets packaged along with a score from Bill Brown and some incredible original songs by Wolf Club that just is, it's 60s surf sound, uh, which is a very unique, like a synth wave kind of sound that really fits uh, the character of Ariel and it fits the progression as simple burglaries and stealing money soon becomes murder. And not just once, not just twice. And through it all, Ariel keeps filming herself and posting it on YouTube, relishing as the number of likes and followers just grows and grows and grows. Um, that in itself is scary. It's scary enough that it is that prevalent that Joshua would make a film about it and address this. So it is a 37 minute long interview that we have. Um, I don't think we're, we're not going to get to all of it, but uh, we'll get to what we can before Jeffrey calls in. So take a listen to Joshua Cam uh, Caldwell as we are talking about in this exclusive interview, Infamous. Hey, Debbie, how are you? I'm happy to be talking to you. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. I'm good. Beautiful day. Well, I have to tell you, Infamous, what a film. What a film. I saw your film negative and was so... Yeah, we spoke about it. Yes, we did. Because, of course, as a diehard General Hospital fan, you must watch a film in which any General Hospital character is in, and Sebastian is, exactly. is, was in negative. Your growth as a filmmaker... I see a distinct difference in your, a growth in your voice, 
in your visual voice, in your emotional voice, and your metaphoric voice with Infamous. You blew me Thank you. you blew me out of the water with this one. Blew me out of the water. Uh, you know, I know it was not planned when you shot this, but as the world has unfolded between COVID and then all the protests and rioting, this becomes even a louder and more powerful societal societal commentary and takes on greater meaning especially when we look at what was happening during the riots of the actual criminals and looters mugging for the cameras, taking selfies, popping them on social media and saying, hey, there are no cops over here. Let's come over here and loot. Right. To see that play out in real time and then to see this film, more that's a lot of Ariel's personality. That is her persona. The obsession of look at me, the fame. It's an interesting commentary on its own as to where this generation is with your followers and likes. That's a substitution for love and fulfillment. So to have this now, this great symmetry happening with real life just adds so much more impact to this film and speaks even louder. So well done, Joshua. So well done. And one of the things that, stru- that stands out the most that lets us really analyze this are the characters of Ariel and Dean. Their personality con- uh, and trait contrast. You've got Dean, who doesn't want to really hurt anybody, but just rob places for money. Ariel is obsessed with the fame and wants to keep going, and the more heinous her, her actions become, the more charged and, and juiced up she gets. But Jake Manley's infusion into Dean with confidence and an innocent naivete to a very large degree makes him endearing. You really want to stay with Dean, and it's like you hope beyond hope that he can convince Ariel to, to give it all up, to go away. And then you have her loudmouth, brassy, and even cruel contrast. Mm-hmm. So there's something here for each person. And then Amber Riley's beautiful, beautiful Elle. It's, she's like us. It's like, yeah, maybe I do want more than what I have. But, you know, uh, I have my apartment. I'm sitting in my apartment. And kind of like the undecideds of the world. What, what do I do? Mm-hmm. You're, uh, what you develop there through script and performance and casting is amazing. How did you start with this? <laughs> How do you begin with something like this, Joshua? Well, I um, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you very much for that, that uh, the insight and uh, you know, giving a very thoughtful consideration to, uh, to the film. You know, that's obviously what I intended. Um, or hope that people would sort of take from it, you know. And, um, you know, for me, I was, I, I had sort of spent some time in, uh, I did a movie called Be Somebody, and I had spent some time with the, the star of that movie, who was an um, influencer. Mm-hmm. And it was a really fascinating look into that world, you know. I, I had no idea who this guy was prior to making the movie, and yet he had millions of people that were following him online. And 
you know, to see sort of how he interacted with them and the way that maybe he did things differently than he would have if he wasn't sort of in that world. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was very, very fascinating to me, that sort of the link between um, uh, influencers and their audience. And I was, I became very interested in the idea in, in this intersection of social media celebrity and the currency, the new currency of, of likes and follows mm-hmm. with, um, with violence and with crime. Um, you know, it's taking the, the two things that in some ways feel very uniquely American, that is the sort of fame, the pursuit of fame and or infamy um, as, a, as a pursuit. I mean, you've got studies showing that kids um, these days in a lot of ways just want to be famous. It doesn't matter for what. Mm-hmm. And now it can truly, you can truly be famous for nothing. You know, it used to be maybe you were at least on a reality show, but now it's, it's you're just a, a person. You're just famous for being you. And um, and so, you know, it's sort of setting this. And then the other side of it that's uniquely American is, is the crime and the violence, you know, yeah. that, that, that pertains here. I mean, you see it every day on the local news, like crime leads, you know. Um, it, it's what gets people to watch. And it's what sells. And so the combination of those two felt like a natural, if not inevitable, um, fit. Mm -hmm. And so the framework of committing crime, which is in in and of itself tends to be newsworthy, but then doing it so, doing so simply for the newsworthiness of it in the form of likes and follows and building celebrity was something that, I felt was insanely ridiculous. It is. It is ridiculous, and yet it's not that far fetched. That's <laughs> we, yeah. Because we used to have there used to be gatekeepers. There used to be gatekeepers, news editors, and 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 writers and and producers who would sort of help determine who was given being given airtime or being given you know. Um, being put from the center, mm-hmm. and um, that's not the case anymore. Now, with nothing more than a with, with a, than a phone, anyone and everyone has the ability to create and reach an audience in the tens of billions, mm-hmm. um, and they never have to step out from behind that device. Yeah, and so I was fascinated by that collision of celebrity and crime, and I really wanted to do something that explored, I really wanted to explore the most extreme version of it. What you, um, you, and not err on the side of subtlety and some kind of deep message thing about the dangers of social media, because that to me inherently feels not social media at all. Social mm-hmm. media doesn't live in the world of subtlety. It doesn't live in the world of, of um, depth. You know, it, it lives in the world of shallowness and it lives in the world of, of out of being as bold as possible because that's what gets you attention, you know? Mm-hmm. So so I just really didn't want to make a movie that was, uh, you know, sort of a sit-back, judge-from-a-distance, objective experience. I wanted I wanted to subjectively marry you to Ariel's journey to make you feel like you were on that journey with her, whether you wanted to be or not, um, and, and to really make the audience, you know, watching it feel like they were following... Ariel's social media feed, that the movie itself felt like Ariel's 
social media feed, that what you were seeing and experiencing was what she wanted you to experience and, and how she wanted you to experience it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it came from a place of, of, you know, satire about this concept of American violence and embracing violence for likes and follows and embracing sensationalism and how that sensationalism attracts violence because mm-hmm. you're constantly you're constantly um, trying to one-up yourself in pursuit of of your followers tuning in and, and having that experience of talking to Bella and seeing people like, you know, even simple things where if you don't post, people get mad at you. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the simple sort of like um, engagement between uh, an influencer and their fans and the requirement that you know, and, and the things that are required of them to maintain that audience. It just felt like we were, it, it was a possibility, it was a possibility of that somehow potentially being real. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to ground, I, I wanted to ground you in her experience and sort of the delusion of it, you know, and have you come out of it going, gosh, like, I, I probably would follow that if that actually happened. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really, I really believe like if this happened in real life, we would all be following this. We would all be following their Instagram. And, and I think that what's interesting about sort of the world of social media is that it is a, um, it's a quantitative uh, value. It's not a qualitative value. Right. And so if, if you have 80 million followers and half of those people are fake, and then half of the remaining half hate follow you, and the other half like follow you. None of that matters. All mm-hmm. that matters is that final number. Yep. And so if you're somebody who is following somebody because you hate them, and you think they're ridiculous, and you're retweeting, you know, or reposting their their inane or stupid, you know, posts and commenting negatively on it, you're you're nonetheless contributing to the overall value of that account and of that person in the world. And, and so, because all that matters at the end of the day is the number of retweets, the number of likes, because that's the metric that gets put out, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I just felt like all of these things were going on and wrapping them up in what I felt like might be kind of an exciting crime thriller um, felt like an interesting way to go. Well, it definitely is exciting. And I have to say, shining, shining uh, work from Eve Cohen. The cinematography here is going handheld. And I'm not normally a fan of a lot of handheld work. But handheld is so key to telling this story, Joshua. Because it does. We are there for the ride. We are there, uh, you know, on Ariel's feed with her. As she's, you know, as she's pulling guns, as she's driving in the car, we feel it. The cinematography right. really makes this very tangible, uh, which I find so striking. And then you add in, especially when you've got ECUs happening and your use of color, the saturation of the color really comes into play here. And we see the progression in the film with the camera movement, with the color, as the crazier and more intense the crime spree gets, the more vibrant the cinematography becomes. And you also bring in 
some beautiful montages, which, as you mentioned, you wanted people to feel like they're following Ariel's feed. In those montages, you really do. It's like one of those picture books you, you could draw when you were a kid before there was animation. You know, you take a pad of paper and draw little things in the corner and you start flipping it and it moves through fast and makes its own little movie. That's ex right. that's exactly what this feels like. But talk to me about working with Eve and and going with the handheld, the use of color and light, because you keep it totally light from a lighting standpoint. You keep us out of darkness. Everything is really done. It's brightly lit uh, or naturally lit, which I found, right. which fits Ariel's personality of, I want everyone to see me. Yeah. It's all these details, Joshua. You thought of everything. Thank you. I mean, yeah, we, we tried. You know, the approach that Eve and I had with the cinematography was we, we were wanting to sort of reference... Um, the types of content that people are now consuming, mm -hmm. you know, specifically on social on social media, um, and the way in which they're consuming it, and so obviously we wanted to make something that was still cinematic, right? Um, but we wanted to take we took cues from sort of the the approaches that you see in some of these apps and some of these other things, and so you know, uh, in terms of you know. The handheld, so I'm, um, you know, I, I love handheld as a director. I, I actually, um, you know, on this movie, I operated the camera on mm -hmm. say, probably 90, 99% of it because I've realized that I have a very peculiar way of, of framing and, and what I'm kind of going for and that it also is a dance between the actors. Mm -hmm. I, so when I'm operating, I can make split-second instinctual moves that I couldn't have directly the camera operator to do, or even Eve to do. And so, um, you know, it gives the actors freedom on set to move and try things, but it also gives me the freedom in the moment to, to decide to make a move or push in or do something different. Um, and so it ended up being a, a real dance. Um, it, but we were also wanting to sort of reference and mimic this, the, the um, you know, the more day-in-the-life gonzo vlogs that you see online that, that people are following, you know, where it's a lot of, it's a lot of just somebody holding a camera, mm -hmm. you know, um, and sort of shooting over their own shoulder or, you know, um, very rough and very raw. And so we wanted to mimic that with the, with the handheld, you know, we wanted to mimic the way in which if people are shooting on an iPhone, you know, nobody goes in and shoots multiple angles or something. They've got one angle and they move and they do a long take and right. they post it. And so you see a lot of the long takes that occur in the movie that gives this effect of a real time, you know, narrative stream that, that might feel like something you see online. You know, the direct camera exchange from, from Ariel in the opening um, was meant to mimic the, the vlog style format. You know, we wanted to, didn't want to do that throughout the whole movie. But we wanted to set it up as though as she's telling you the story. Mm -hmm. You know, the quick text montages are reference to you know the way in which you see the speed up cameras, sped up cameras on on Instagram and time lapse and all that kind of stuff. And and so from a from an operation and a framing standpoint, we wanted to live in that world. And and then we also wanted to live in the world of color because you know I I, 
I didn't want to do a movie where it felt like, oh, it's all blue or it's all orange or, you know, mm -hmm. it's that, that kind of traditional thing that you see nowadays. I wanted to get back to what I felt you saw a lot of on Instagram, which is like these photos that are, are more vibrant than they are in real life because they've got a filter applied. Yep. You know, we, we, we're no longer unfamiliar or, or have a problem with seeing stuff that's been photoshopped or, or filtered. And so, because that stuff is what pops on the phone, you know? And so I wanted something, you know, and talking to Eve, I was like, this should feel like it's an Instagram filter to apply to. This should be super chroma-saturated, you know, it should be super colorful, it should be super poppy, you know, not just in the cinematography, but we wanted that to then extend into, you know, the wardrobe and the production design and all that kind of stuff so that it felt like something that was that was living in the world, in that world, and was something that all of this combined would have the audience going, okay, this feels familiar to me, you know, but it's not, it's not uncinematic, you know, mm -hmm. but it's at once familiar and, and comfortable. And then even beyond the cinematography, the use of the way we, we decided to go with like the comments, you know, as they pop up on screen, mm -hmm. came out of the discussion I had with Bella because you know, we were never going to get permission from Twitter or Instagram to use their design in a movie like this where effectively their platforms are being used to promote crime. Right. And so what I didn't want to do was was come up with some fake social media company and have that in there because that would have instantly just, I think, made the whole thing feel too fake. Yeah. Um, and, and, but I knew I couldn't show the design. And so I wanted to lean into, much like we did with the camera work, lean into the sort of more psychological aspects of that. And one of the things that Bella had told me was when we were talking about how we were going to do the comments, Bella was like, well, maybe you want to do this kind of like full screen text because she said that's what it feels like, you know, when you're reading comments, whether they're positive or negative. They mm -hmm. feel like you're just being hit in the face by it. And um, and I thought that having that kind of be bold and in your face and rapidly moving through it with just keywords, either negative or positive, sort of sticking out, might you know sort of a, a, a create an effect to the audience, you know, of either discomfort or of you know just not just being too much. But but that in a way echoed the experience of these people when when these kind of comments show up. You know, I felt like just having them static on the screen as this kind of like on a white background just wouldn't be very visceral or exciting. And so we took a lot of cues from that and how we developed out the look and feel of the movie. And, and I, you know, I think it really comes through. It definitely does. And piggybacking all of that, the editing is killer. The editing is killer. It is rapier. You've got a well-developed pacing that's attuned to the action and Ariel's mindset. and But yet, there are moments where we get to take a breath. Much like Dean, mm -hmm. who has to take a breath every now and again. Just because of Ariel's, oh, you know, stereophonic, quadraphonic, Dolby personality. Right. The editing is fabulous. How challenging was the editing to find the rhythm for this story? You know, I think that it, I, I, what was, I think, fortunate was, because I also wrote it, 
it was in the DNA of the script. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort of quick pacing and the way we moved through scenes was was in there because that was also like, you know, look to be to be fair, I've made several movies before, Negative being one of them, which were much slower, mm-hmm. much more subtle. You know, kind of lived in that world of like slow it down because it's like you know, and, and I I also knew that with this. To be frank, I really wanted to make something bold and kind of batshit crazy, you know, just really aggressive. And so pacing-wise, I, I knew because we were, I wanted to create that kind of more commercial backbone where mm-hmm. you're moving very quickly through your events that then also hopefully have some depth in the commentary that it was that it was sort of putting forth. And so, but but we had to get that, that kind of pacing right. We had to get that kind of movement right. And so, you know, it was kind of ingrained in the script and then it was also ingrained in the sort of frenetic way we shot it. Um, and when it came to editing, it was, it was funny. It was not really that difficult. The editing was actually quite smooth and didn't take very long, to be honest. Um, but, you know, I think that that's, uh, contributive of the factor that, you know, Will Torbett, my editor, and I have worked on, I mean, this is our fourth feature Yeah, together, you guys. Several, you know, several digital and short film projects. And so he gets it. Like, he sort of, you know, he knows what I'm looking for. And at the same time, I like to try, especially with the first edit, I like to try and give him a lot of freedom to explore and try things that I might not have thought of. You know, so it's a very hands, for me, it's a very hands-off approach to the first edit see what he's going to do and, and oh maybe he's going to see this material differently than I do um, but then you know and then sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't I would say that like you know one of the things I love about Will is he's really great with montages so a lot of the montages in the movie are, are all him and I love that and that's part of our exclusive with Joshua Caldwell. We will have the rest of that for you later this week in various places in its entirety. Um, but we're going we're gonna to go to Jeffrey Dornbos in just a second. But before we do, breaking news in Hollywood this morning, um, acclaimed director Joel Schumacher uh, passed away today, this morning in New York City, 80 years old. Um, you know his work. The Lost Boys, Flatliners, Phone Booth, Phantom of the Opera, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, and so many more. Um, What a loss. What a vibrant voice in cinema. Um, His work will live on. Um, So that is our sad news for, for today. But right now, let's move on to something upbeat and happy. And a big welcome to Jeffrey Dornbos. Hi, Jeffrey. Uh, hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing just fine, thank you. I am so happy to talk to you about A Thousand Miles Behind. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I'm I'm excited to talk to you about it as well. <laughs> you know, the first the first film I saw you in was Fat Kid Rules the World. Um, it was ah. Matthew Lillard's debut directorial. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. So that's been almost a decade ago now. I know it's crazy. Two thousand. Well, it came out in two thousand twelve. So I know it's it's that's nuts how time flies for sure. I'll tell you. 
But, you know, something very – and then I've seen you in lots of TV one-offs, I, I, in NCIS, in Grey's Anatomy, Law and Order. You pop up. You come in. Yeah. You go out. You keep popping up. Um, but now you've got a film where this is all you. Win, lose, or draw. Um, it, this, yeah. this film <laughs> rises and falls on you, <laughs> Jeffrey. Um, and I have to say that watching you, this, as I told Nathan, this is an emotionally experiential film. There is mm. very little dialogue. And yeah. this is what, this is and one of the reasons I think you were the perfect person to play the role of Preston, a man who undergoes a traumatic event in his life and has to find himself. Find a reason to go on. Um, I think it's because of all your all of your work with Blue Man Group New York, in New York City. You there's not dialogue there, right? So it's all right. about ex- using expression, body language, facial movements, your eyes, uh, and I think that and your experience doing that and your adeptness and your skill at that. I think that really contributes to your success and the emotionality that you give this film as Preston. Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. Um, It it was truly, um, you know, this is this this project to me is an example of when when you find something that you feel. Um, that you just feel is authentic and real. And my main goal with this whole thing was just to get out of the way. And with the, to your point regarding the lack of dialogue or the minimal dialogue, it just became more important to get out of the way of the silence Mm -hmm. and to really let, you know, as they say, let the camera do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a real challenge and it's, uh, it's uh, due in no small fact to this, that I trust Nathan. I've known him for a long time. I trust his creativity. I trust his, his creative impulses and instincts. And so that was a real benefit to have that direct director actor relationship in this, in this film for sure, because he was very supportive of, me doing as little as I felt I needed to do or as much as I felt I needed to do. And, and he was very good at, I at one point referred to him as a conductor because um, he really did sort of conduct the tone and the emotionality of this, of this movie. Yeah. And something else that's striking here is not only is there minimal and to very, very little dialogue, Similarly, there's very little score and music. We've got songs that pop up in key moments, but there's very little score to even fill in the blanks until Preston gets on the road um, on that incredible Scrambler Ducati bike. Uh, (laughs) 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 uh, (laughs) That's a character, too. Um, I got to say, yes, for sure. That bike is a character because that's not just any bike. 
it has, uh, for anybody that knows motorcycles or even the littlest bit about, this is not a Harley that you're hopping on, that everybody has. And that's very metaphoric to the relationship that Preston had and the loss that he suffers. Um, I see that bike as a replacement, that connective tissue with what he had before and the way it's treated in the film and the way you treat it uh, as you mount it, as you stop, as you ride it. Um, you know, the great scene in the desert where you've done, you've spun out in the, in the dirt and can't get the bike up and you're struggling and struggling. And it really metaphorically speaks to what Preston was trying to do with his own life. He was trying to get himself back up. Um, yeah. And I just love that. And, uh, you know, it's not like it was just any old bike. It's like your life is not just any old life. Your loss is not just right. any old loss. Um, so you, yeah. something very special like this bike is perfect. Perfect. Well, and, and there's something to the... You know, we were grateful that Ducati let us use their logo and, you know, we didn't have to put black tape anywhere on the bike. And so we were able to allow it to be sort of this specific thing to Preston as opposed to just a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. So I think that for, I think you're right, that uh, there was, there was a, there was a moment when I said to Nathan, when we were before we started shooting and I was working on the character and looking at the script and I said, what does, in your mind, what does getting on the motorcycle represent to Preston? Like, wh why is it so hard for him? Mm -hmm. And what Nathan did, what he did a lot of is he sort of put it back on me and said, well, what do you think it is? And, you know, and, if, and tell me, you know, think about it and tell me what you think, and then I'll let you know if you're in the right direction. And one of the things that I came up with was that it wasn't just getting on the bike wasn't just about moving forward. It was also admitting to the fact that they're gone and they're never coming back. Mm -hmm. And so as much as it was moving forward, for Preston, it was also this this admission and of of this sort of initial admission of the depth of his loss, and and so I I sort of dug into that and and really let that motorcycle be the thing that when I was on it, it wasn't just about my own recovery; it was also about the uh, absorbing the fact that these two people who were my everything are now a memory. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you, you get a script like this, you see a script like this. What is the first thing that comes into your mind? This is not your traditional script. It's not like getting a script for law and order and it's, Oh yeah, here I got four pages of dialogue. Okay. I'm in two scenes. Yeah. Um, what do you? Th what goes through your mind when Nathan gives you a script like this, and you're turning the pages, and there's not a whole lot of pages that have dialogue on them? Yeah. Um, I there's there's a 
kind of, um, uh, in this particular case, I was, you know, I was, I wouldn't say I was intimidated by it, but I was definitely like, okay, you know, let's dive into this thing. I, when he, we had originally talked about doing something together and this is sort of what evolved. And I'm sure Nathan talked about that Mm -hmm. with you and, and the, when I first read the script, it was one of those things where I kept thinking, I, I kept, as much as I trusted Nathan, I also understand the narrative structure and all of that. So I was waiting for certain things to come up, certain sort of moments or plot points that you would sort of expect in a story like this. And, and they came up, but in such subtle ways that I was just thrilled by it and, and was at, at once slightly intimidated, but also completely 110% game to jump on board and to do it. And um, because you're right, it doesn't have it, it doesn't have the, the sort of the tent poles that you can hang mm-hmm. on to, whether it's dialogue, whether it's plot structure. But what it had are all these moments opening the mailbox and finding the book. Where does the book come from? What does the book mean to him? Why this book, Nathan, um, you know, for Nathan and then why this book for the character and I mean, just every moment in it seemed so intentional that I just realized that my job was to bring as much intentionality as Nathan did to the script. Mm -hmm. Now, because so much of this is observational for the audience to be observing Preston, how Preston is reacting, what he's going through and how that is uh, manifesting uh, physically and visually, um, so much for so much of that, we have to rely on Keith Dunkerley capturing that with the camera. Yeah. Did you develop any kind of real? Every actor develops some kind of relationship with the camera, um, mm-hmm. especially when the camera is going to be trained on you for one hundred percent of the film. Because yeah. of the very nature of Preston, did you want to become? "Quote unquote," one with the camera, or did you want to keep take a step back and let the camera be a spectator? I'm curious about that because of the nature of this film. That's interesting. I think what happened in this case was that I there were moments where I wanted to essentially look right down the barrel of the lens. Mm-hmm. And so there were moments, there, it, it was a little bit of both, but there were definitely moments that the things that stick out to me most about this was that I definitely wanted to sort of, I wanted the character to sort of reach out through, through the lens to the audience, but then obviously we don't ever want it to feel like the camera is there, but there are a few shots where, you know, it it was as, it it was as close to looking directly into the camera as one would ever want to do without completely breaking that fourth wall. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think it was really um, a combination of 
completely doing nothing and letting the camera do all the work. And then other moments where I spoke with Keith on a couple of occasions and, and, you know, Nathan responding, looking in, looking into the monitor, just feeling like, I feel like I'm looking directly at the lens. Does it, you know, does it look that way? And Nathan would say, no, it's great. And then Keith, same thing, you know, there, that there was this sense that you, you, we we really wanted Preston to kind of come as much as he was in his shell. We wanted him to feel that the audience. We wanted it to feel like the audience could reach him still. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the way Keith shot it and the way Keith, the way Nathan directed it, I just feel like it really accomplishes that. You care for this guy, yeah. In as much, even as much as he is completely removed from anyone around him. You're really rooting for Preston. Um, yeah, you are so intense in bringing in capturing Preston's emotion that as I'm watching your performance, my heart is breaking, just mm. wanting Preston to find some peace, to find something to hold on to. We feel the depth of his loss. Um, it's very hard to explain, but watching you in uh, in the living room scene, um, in particularly, and then in the bedroom scene, and as you're sitting there surrounded by dead flowers uh, on the floor or in the backyard, but particularly sitting in the house, and it is it's a cacophony of silence and heartache, mm. and. Yeah the look on your face and your whole body language with the shoulders slumped and the head. And it's as if Preston cannot even lift his head to even Mm. look at anything. Um, And in that moment, the audience, you really, you have, you embrace Preston totally, totally. And you want, you want to see him, you want to see him find peace. You want to see him find self again. Um, so from that moment on, you've got, you had me hooked. Um, <laughs> well, that's so nice. And, no. uh, you know, and then. Yeah, it's. And then, it's just one of those things where you, 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 ju- you know, I, I, I saw it as my job to come to the table loaded for bear with. I, I knew I knew every angle of this guy. I knew all of the things, not only that he decides to do, but also all of the things that he decides not to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then in working with Nathan, you know, there were times when Nathan, there's a shot in the in the hotel. Uh, we're in the desert and there's, you can hear that there's like a party going on next door mm-hmm. and I'm in the shower and I'm just sort of putting water on my face. And the first couple of takes, um, n- n- sort of knowing where that scene needed to go, where I'm sitting on the bed in my t-shirt and I, I sort of just have this initial sob and then Nathan cuts away. I, I did that thing where I was, sort of linking those two shots together and thinking I need to sort of work into that moment. And so the first couple of takes, I, 
I was pretty emotional in the shower. And and then Nathan said, let's try a couple where you're just literally putting water on your face. And it's one of those moments as an actor where you go, I'm so glad I did all the emotional work because now when I just put the water on my face, all of that other stuff is going to be there and I don't have to call on it. I don't have to mm-hmm. lean into it. All I got to do is put water on my face. And it was that sort of um, balance of, like I said, this sort of emotional dynamic that Nathan kept conducting that I think really allowed the character to be believable and, you know, and not melodramatic mm-hmm. or, or not stone cold, yeah. but just a very believable, you know, uh, heartbreaking character, which is what Nathan wrote. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's the, whole, the film is not just all you. As Preston goes on his journey and starts yeah. finding the spirituality, starts to take hold within him, um, you know, meets some interesting people along the way, gets his ass kicked in a bar. <laughs> yes. um, but, you know, I have to. Casey Wolf. That I have to admit, that was quite a fun scene, but, and not just because here, you know, you give the impression throughout the film that, yeah, you could actually take this guy, but then forget it. You know, you're on the ground. Yeah. But it's the yeah. speech that Preston gives that I yeah. love that speech because it is. It's a cautionary tale to everybody. And, you know, no drinking and driving, you know, it's something everybody hears over and over and over again. But through this character and this story, we really see the ramifications of that. Yeah. And, And, you know, Nathan Nathan spoke a lot about not wanting to, you know, this isn't a movie about not, you know, don't drink and drive, and it's not a movie about, you know, I don't know, school shootings or whatever. And I, but, but, but I think what that speech does so well is that because he's just speaking as if in metaphor about something that really happened to him, again, mm-hmm. it becomes a very specific thing. Yep. And in that specificity, the universal message is clear, yes. you know, and without being preachy. Um, yeah. Because it's just real. It's just a real thing. It's like in in this guy's life, he wouldn't have done that before. Very likely he might have looked over and said, oh, what an asshole. But now he's, you know, it means something more to him. And and he just doesn't care what's coming his way. He's going to, in that moment, he's just going to get it off his chest, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, and that that also brings up a very, a very important component, two important components in the film. One is Vanessa Campbell as Tracy, whom yeah. Preston Amazing. meets along the way. And as I told Nathan, my God, anybody whose spirits that could not be lifted, being in a room with this woman, <laughs> they're dead. They're, they're, their heart yeah. is stone. They have no emotional core. They are dead. Yeah. She, it, she yeah. just radiates. It emanates. Her, her boundless energy and upbeat joy. Yeah. It's, and, oh my, it's just amazing. And to see the dynamic unfold um, between Preston and Tracy and 
her willing, it's like without even asking names, it's, yeah, I'll help you out. I'll give you a ride. Um, okay, maybe not something that people should be doing, you know, <laughs> but but it's just, it's so important in Preston's journey to meet someone yeah. like Tracy. And it, it to me, that meeting her almost felt like a, a Martha Williamson touched by an angel episode. Um, yeah. Where all yeah. of a sudden yeah. Monica or Tess show up and, you know, open your eyes a little and lend a helping hand without you knowing that they yeah. are angels in disguise. Um, I think the thing that I love about what Vanessa does so well uh, with that character and the, the choices she makes in this is that it, it could have been you know, again, it could have been any range of people or characters or female characters that Preston runs into. Right. But there's something about, I think what Preston sees in her is her, she plays that so authentically. And again, she doesn't push any of it. She doesn't play into any of the sorrow of the moment when she sort of discovers that something is going on with this guy. Right. She doesn't seek to fix him. She doesn't like she just every the way she plays everything is so authentic and real that I think it just disarms Preston to the point where, well, wait a minute. I thought I wanted to just be alone, Mm -hmm. but I can't help but accept what she's bringing Mm -hmm. me in that moment. And yeah, she is. She she that that she just shines yeah. in this role and is so radiant as everyone keeps saying and her her gentleness of her gentle delivery of things and her light touch I mean she's just she's she's very gifted you know I'm curious because of the nature of this dynamic between Preston and Tracy did you and Vanessa. Um, rehearse it all, or did you guys kind of keep your distance and play that, play that kind of cold, so it was fresh and it was truly sp- more spontaneous in nature. Yeah, we didn't really rehearse it. I mean, we you know we blocked a few things, but we didn't really rehearse it. We we ke- we wanted to keep it a little fresh and spontaneous and see what we came up with and see how we bounced off of each other. Um, yeah, for sure. We did not, we might've run the lines a few times, you know, but tried to do them sort of very flat and wrote mm-hmm. and just to sort of make sure we kind of knew what we were about to say. Um, but yeah, we, we just went into that pretty cold and, just worked off of each other. It was yeah. great. It, it was great. Really, really exciting. I mean, the the proof is in the pudding on screen. Uh, it's it's oh, fabulous. That's great to hear. But then you also third act. Greg Evigan pulls one of his come in yeah. and get out moves, but yeah, <laughs> such. <laughs> I love how I think the last thing I saw him go all the way through was a Hallmark movie with his daughter. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where she, right. where she's a, a princess undercover, doesn't want to be discovered. Right. Um, other than that, <laughs> he comes in. He's got one scene in films, and he gets out. But Greg has this knack for picking scenes 
and roles that are so memorable with that one moment. And that's what he does yeah. here with, as the character of Gary. And the two of you together, I mean, you really, this brings the whole film, it fills in the backstory that we don't have. Yeah. Um, now we yeah. get, after we've gone on this journey with Preston, now we get the backstory. So we were not belabored by that with expectations for, the, for yeah. everything leading up to that. And I found that so interesting in Nathan's construct. But then to bring Greg in for that role, so sincere, so believable. And watching the two of you on camera, you truly believe that, that Gary and Preston have been friends forever. Well, it's, 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 uh, again, I'm thrilled to hear that response to that because I had not met him before. Um, I've never worked with him before. I don't know him socially. And when we met on that day at the beach, uh, you know, we were in the parking lot and we were introduced and we chatted a little bit and then we sort of dove in and, there's something about the um, th there's something about Greg's his masculinity, but also his warmth. Yes, that is just you can't help. But the whole time, I just was like, I can't wait for him to hug me at the end. Yes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he just has that thing, and and. And and one of the great things that Nathan does in the movie is that the only embrace in the movie. That's it. In fact, I think really the only physical contact, aside from when Bree Blair kisses me on the forehead on her way out the door, is with Greg Evigan at the end of the scene, at the end of the well, movie. Well, and when you get punched. So you, you, and when Preston gets punched. What's that? And when Preston, and gets, when Preston punched. gets punched. Get out. That's right. <laughs> A kiss, a punch, and a and an embrace. See, right? it and works. but that I love that. I love that we see these two men who are suffering, and and you know, it's crazy times. And I just think it, it was such a delightful thing to be able to embrace this yeah. male character that doesn't have all the answers and is lost and just is trying to find his way back. Yeah. And he ends up in the, you know, being hugged and led along the way by, yeah. by you know, Mr. Evigan. No, it's the whole, the whole film. I just, I love this film so much. And your performance is amazing, Jeffrey. Um, you know, we're Thank al you. we're almost out of time, but before I let you go, I have to ask you, you know, you've made the transition from doing, you know, creative theater with Blue Man Group and other theater that you've done, uh, to television, to film, and now a film like this. I have to ask, what is the gift that acting gives to you that keeps oh. you going, that keeps you digging for roles like this? I have to say the first thing that pops into my head is it it's the thing I've always loved and have found essential for me to be an actor and in, in my work 
is the ability to dive into people I've never met before and have never had the experience that they've had and to understand where they come from. To, instead of vilifying a character or making a character a hero, finding out whether they're the... I, I just recently played a really bad guy in a movie that'll be coming out. It's a universal film that'll be coming out here soon. And he's a really bad guy. And I had to find what made him tick. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I want to be that guy. It just means that I appreciate the understanding of humanity, that we all live, that we all struggle. And some of us make one set of decisions and some of us make the other. And to me, understanding that sense of humanity and digging in in that way is, is the greatest gift. I feel like I understand the world better through my work. Mm. Well, I'm so glad you made this film. Uh, and I will, I'll be watching it again. I assure you, I will be oh, watching this film it. yet again. Um, because it's that, it is that it emotionally satisfying to watch this film. Um, Jeffrey, well, please, thank you, ha- you. you have to come back on the show again. Hopefully when um, your next film, your universal film comes out, we can talk about you being a bad guy then. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so, so much. And everybody can watch your performance right now because it's on digital, it's streaming, it's all over the place. Yes, it is out. It is it is there to be watched. And, you know, we love hearing what people think of it. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so, so much. And I hope I talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Jeffrey. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Jeffrey Dornbos talking about A Thousand Miles Behind. Love that film. If you get a chance, people, see it. Our other film today, Infamous, Joshua Caldwell, writer, director. See it. Another film I I just want to quickly mention that is out right now streaming that you can see, 7,500. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Riveting, A Hijacking, directed by Patrick, let me get Patrick, Patrick Volrath, uh, and film takes place in the cockpit of a plane that's been hijacked. So it's a very interesting perspective. The camera work is absolutely amazing. Sebastian Thaler is the cinematographer. Uh, I spoke with Sebastian. We're going to have that interview coming up uh, in the future. And then put it on your calendars. The trailer just dropped. Social Distance. Brian Barsuglia's film. Uh, and I'm a producer on it. So I have to get in a shameless plug like that. Um, trailer is out for Social Distance. It's in post-production now. So we'll see what Brian does with it. So that is all the time we have this week. We'll be back next week. We got more people already booked for next week. So until then. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. 